0: back to another just joyously filled episode of Pastors with a Podcast. This is Pastor Marcus Spagat at Emanuel's
1: Lutheran Church. Pastor Megan Elliott at Spirit of Joy Lutheran Church.
2: Pastor Kelsey Tice also at Emmanuel's Lutheran Church.
3: And Pastor Andy Limlin at First Presbyterian Church of
0: Seguin. Our motley crew is not quite complete as we were, uh, as you could hear by our voices, but uh, we know that they are doing great ministry work for the sake of Christ Church, and we will be back together with the full band, everybody in the same room, um, like the blues people. That's what we'll just call us, the blues people. Um, I like Dan Aykroyd, so I'll, I'll take his, his, you know, yeah. It was an inclusive attempt. I'm looking at Andy. It was an inclusive attempt at, uh, you know, Blues Brothers. But anyway. I'm John Belushi. Hey, the, what? there you go. There you go. I'm dead. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm uh, uh, yeah, there you go. No, he's not. He's a growing pot. He's doing great things. Dan Aykroyd? Oh, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, yeah. The other said John yeah, Belushi, he, anyway. yeah, John
3: Belushi's been dead for a long time. Uh, <laughs> but Dan Aykroyd is producing that wonderful vodka in the Crystal Skull thing. So he can, you know, lots of stuff on aliens and stuff. He, he's a weirdo.
0: He's a weirdo. There you go. There you go. <laughs> we continue our conversation uh, in the opening parts of Genesis, uh, walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter, thought by thought, and hopefully, um, can hopefully really getting you to think about uh, our kind of our leading theme of not your grandparents' Bible. Uh, we pick up today in verse 26 of chapter one, uh, and we are on the tail end of the creation account that I think a lot of folks are really used to and really familiar with. This is what you see pasted on every. VBS wall, every children's book has this listed out, all of the the birds springing forth and the waters and all that stuff separating. But today we pick up on the really unique language that is used when talking about humanity. And uh, I really want us to dive into the the oddity of the third person that exists here. The language that is used changes. So uh, I'm gonna follow follow kind of PT's thought here for a little bit. and the way he handled things, and just read this to you, and then really ask my gracious colleagues to dive in even further. So, uh, verse 26, I'm reading from the NRSV translation. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And then we get the declaration of 27, what God has said, God then does. So God created humankind in God's image, in the image of God, God created them male and female. God created them. I love that. Still, I said this when we first gathered together, creeping things that creep upon the earth. I just, I just love Hebrew for all its idiosyncrasies. And that just happens to be one of them. So, uh, we talked a little bit, too, about the, the idea of dominion. Uh, PMOG, you brought that up, too, that we really have a, uh, a really odd taste for dominion when we say it in our Western mindset, our capitalistic mindset, that uh, it's not really dominion as if someone wearing a crown you know, and a staff and do it the way, but really should carry the, the flavor of stewardship uh, birthed out of care and love. So what say you all?
3: Yes. <laughs> uh, no, you're you're totally right. I mean, this this notion of dominion, which has so traditionally been used as excuse for everything from um, environmental destruction to racism to wanton um, slaughter of uh, God's other creatures. Um, I mean, it, it really. Um, it really can be a troubling theology, but it can also be a beautiful theology—a theology of stewardship, theology that acknowledges that we are respo- we are in a unique position as human beings of taking on the responsibility of the care of all creation. Um, and I think that when when that side of it is is played up, that, that's a far more beautiful um, take on this text than what has historically been. Uh, up to this point.
2: Absolutely. And one of my favorite pieces um, that PM brought up is is the changing to the third person. And um, I like to think of it as the royal we, <laughs> since we are talking about the divine. Um, and uh, that was always something uh, my mom brought up when I was growing up. And she was like, we need to do this. And I was like, what? And she goes, oh, the royal we. And I was like, oh, Of course, when I was younger, I didn't know what that meant anyway. But um, I like to see this um, as the royal we. Well,
3: of course, there's also... I'm sorry, Megan, it looked like you were about to say something.
1: I was, but I would much prefer that you um, talk from your deep knowledge of uh, ancient Near East culture that I don't Um, possess.
3: Okay, I mean... I would love to hear your voice too. And so I don't want to dominate the conversation, but okay. I guess I can do that. Uh, there is also the notion of course, that, um, it's not so much the royal we as God is speaking to other beings that are perhaps there with him on God's level. Um, you know, the, the creation story of course, echoes many creation stories from the ancient near East and, we can't forget the fact that um, strict monotheism as a, as a practice was something that developed. It didn't just appear overnight in the religious landscape. And so what we may be looking at is kind of a weak polytheism or more likely what's called a henotheism in which there is one God dominant and worthy of worship, but there are other deities um, acknowledged and that God is perhaps speaking to other uh, gods in this instance, and that's challenging because we don't like to think of, you know, Bible people as being somewhat polytheist. But I think that that just has to be a reality in the cultural context.
2: Well, especially considering how often they turn away from God and worship other things. Like to to not acknowledge to think that they were strictly monotheistic is is kind of ridiculous.
3: Oh yeah, and
1: um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah i mean the article archaeological- well, and this old. sorry good
1: this story was being written or or uh, it, it could have been told for many many years but it was being written around the time of uh exile is that what we decided this is one mm-hmm. of the later written
3: yeah
1: texts um and for the the folks in exile, I mean, the ancient Near East idea was if you were conquered, your God was conquered. So, um, to think that they were monotheistic—I mean, they—I think they they bought into that system. So writings like um, Ezekiel and um, other other writings that talk about God going with the people, um, God leaving the temple—is really significant that God is not um that the prophets are promising the people that god has not been defeated and in this creation story god is the deity that is above all other deities so god is the the strongest the best the brightest the uh god over all other gods as evidenced by the fact that god was not um defeated when the people were taken into exile Right. God is the best God.
0: The best God,
1: the greatest, better than other God. gods.
3: Um, but no, you're totally right. I mean, and there's this aspect of of like centralized power at play here because um, most historians, anthropologists, and archaeologists agree that monotheism develops with the idea of monarchy. That. Um, instead of having many, uh, kings over many city-states, the idea of having one singular king over a large region, uh, lends itself to the belief that, well, there must be one dominant god. I mean, um, it doesn't just happen here. It happens in Egypt eventually with, um, where they literally create a deity, uh, by smashing together two other deities. They create, uh, from Ra and from, um, um, some I forget the other god, but they create the uh, god Amun, who is the only one worthy of worship. And there's a huge religious schism in Egypt in the Bronze Age because of that. And that's all in an attempt to create a divine cult centered around oneness. Um, Where did you thing? own all of this stuff? School. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> Wiki, yeah, sometimes. Hey, never, never, never uh, count that down. No, it's, um, I mean, the famous King Tut, Tutankhamun, Amun, is the son of the pharaoh that pursued those reforms. And his name, Luru means the son of Amun. And um, so, like, these things influence each other, right? And uh, a lot of scholars who, um, who buy into what's called the documentary hypothesis Look at this first chapter of Genesis and they see an ideology at play that's found in the southern kingdom of Judah, which is temple and monarchy centric. And so it's wanting to uphold this idea that God, that there is one very powerful God, that that God is transcendent. Uh, So in this first story, we don't see things like God doing very human things like walking in the garden or something like that, like we would in the second story, which is more northern. Um, it's a little hard for folks to wrap their head around when they first hear that—that that, what there are two creation stories and two entirely different views of God—but um, but that is kind of the prevailing theory here. The other Not, piece that we sorry, I was going to say I, I'm talking too much. So there you go.
0: <laughs> you you are the resident you're the resident uh, uh, scholar here, so that's all great. Yay, sure. resident scholar! Woo. <laughs> One of the other pieces, especially on the Middle Eastern uh, cultures and and and, and such, that is wonderful. One of the pieces I was going to share, too, in light of this, this polytheistic understanding is that even our own biblical story doesn't highlight God living alone. God is always pictured within a context of a gathered community. And in the opening parts of Genesis, going even up to the story of Noah, we have the Nephilim, right? We have, we have angels. We have the understanding that God's, God's temple, the, if we think of Revelation and the image of that new Jerusalem coming down, God is never pictured alone. God has always have cherubim and seraphim. And we think of the visions that Daniel has, the visions that Elijah have, that the visions that even John of Patmos have. God is never alone. So to think that God is simply talking to God's self uh, as one would do driving on the tollway is kind of out of the picture instead of it is a God sitting in conversation with those whom are lifted up as those caring for God. So uh, I I imagine it's just a giant, you know, round table with a whole bunch of people going, well, I have an idea and God going, "Mm, no, probably not, probably not. But how about this? (laughs) And there's, but there's dialogue. Um, And we even have, you know, John of Patmos and looking in Revelation too, of understanding and saying, you know, yeah, there's 144,000 that we could count, but look at the multitude beyond that. Look at all these people throughout time. And even within the context of the creation story, um, I I wonder too, I think there's a challenge as well that our creation, our earth, and this might be pushing it, but who knows, um, that our creation and our earth is the first time God has done this. Nothing is to say that this isn't another opportunity for God to have created our own, our own scripture that we're going to talk about moving into the end of chapter two and in subsequent chapters of Genesis. And uh, PK and I is professor of one of our professors of systematics, uh, Dwayne Preby would argue that the whole, the whole Bible is nothing but a recreation story. Every okay. single, they're, they're throughout the Bible, but but we we also limit God in that. Well, God did it once here. Boom, we happened.
1: That's not that's not necessarily true,
0: and and there's nothing to say otherwise. I mean,
3: even well,
1: and it it also um, opens up the possibility of alien life and other worlds, which C.S. Lewis um, explored a little bit in The Magician's Nephew. Um, right, I have the right. Book, yeah. From the, yeah, and I
0: think
3: his space trilogy, where it's literally <laughs> oh, yeah, called the space trilogy. The space trilogy. <laughs> Very creative that, guy, that like C.S. Lewis.
1: <laughs> he ran out, uh, Narnia was too much, it stretched him. And actually, I think he wrote the space trilogy before Narnia, but um, actually, I don't know
2: that Narnia, just, if that's the case, uh, Narnia was just percolating, and that space trilogy yeah. was in the back, so
3: yeah, I do think you're right, though. I think space trilogy came first,
1: um. But yeah, the I mean, I don't think that the Bible or Christian thought, life, precludes um, this idea that there is life outside of our own understanding of life. Right.
2: Well, and the fact that creation, um, as has been shown to us in science and as has been shown to us through the Holy Spirit, creation is just not a, a one-off thing. Um, creation is ongoing, and it's it's um, it's complete in the sense that um, I don't want to say that either. Uh, <laughs> it's complete and it's incomplete because it's both and so so Lutheran. Because we get to participate in God's creation. Um, we are God's creation, and we get to participate in the creating of things um, inspired by God uh, or Um, participate in taking care of creation. And and it's, yeah.
0: And I also, I want to lift up to the magnitude of creation. Quantum mechanics and quantum physics will tell us that creation itself, the way in which atoms have combined is incredibly small in terms of it happening again. The perfection that it took to create what we have is insane and I, I don't remember the the, the actual statistic but I, I my brother who is a brilliant scientist and I love having these conversations with him you know our molecular setup and the molecular setup of the wall that surrounds our offices the sheetrock have a lot of similarities and there is a possibility that if you were to jump against that wall umpteen amount of times that your atoms and the atoms of the wall would align and you'd pass through the wall that you would become one with it. You might get stuck in the middle, but you know, Hey, there, there's that. But the idea oh, that the, we the have you
1: should try it. <laughs> yeah, I should.
0: I'll create some space. Let run. You know that goes next week. Just run, run. through the drywall. Yeah. Just a, just a one and done kind of thing. Right. But, Please the don't. Off, <laughs> but the off chance that, you know, that we would have the ability to breathe air that our bodies could compute the mathematics that it does that our eyes can take in light and refract what it does to see what creation looks like is is the sign for me that that something greater than we are has been in control and continues to shape and guide what's going on and that's that's incredible absolutely yeah. incredible. And so I don't believe that God is simply sitting in a chair somewhere else going, well, that was a fun game. We're going to let that one play out. Like some sort of version of D&D where the game maker is just like, or the dungeon master is going, eh, will just let everybody die? But we do believe in a God that not only is a part of creation, but a God that continues to create. And because of that, we are blessed with this sense that we have an imaginative God. We have an imaginative God that brings life into being. And that then puts the most complex thing to the very end, which is for me, it is humanity, but actually the most complex thing comes after verse 27. And it is how this, this particular, this particular version of the creation story ends. The most complex thing about creation is not what God created, but that God said, now you're going to live together. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. to me is, the most complex thing, because that requires relationship. So the relationship we see as we have come to understand in Christianity is the triune God is very present because God is a God of relationship. And verse 28 through the end of, of chapter 1, going then into that conclusion of the beginning of chapter 2, is all about God saying, okay, we've done it. We've put everything together that is has been asked of us if it was asked of us, but we've created that. Now we're going to set the ball to roll. Uh-huh. You now as creation itself with humanity charged with the care and love of what has been created now live in it, uh-huh. live together. And to me, that's the craziest part of the entire story. That's the part where I would go, mm, are you sure, God? Yeah. Are you sure you want to hand the 16 year old the keys? Like, are you? Are you really sure? This is a big car. Like, are you really sure? But yet, God has, and God continues to do that by saying, I'm going to put gas in it again. Don't crash it this time. <laughs> I'm going to put new tires on it. Don't run it off the road. Those kind of things.
3: Daddy's premiums are flying through the roof.
0: <laughs> Amen. Amen.
3: But you're right. I mean, it, it, it upholds, at least in the Trinitarian interpretation of it, like you say, it upholds God's incredible need. For relationship and intimacy so that god spontaneously creates the opportunity for relationship even within god's very self with the birth of the triune and out of that the birth of creation from from nothingness um does uphold love and the desire for love as being the ultimate creative spark which is pretty cool i think
2: Well, and then we'll have to, um, it's looking like with our, with our timeline here, we're going to have to wait to get into (laughs) Genesis to um, the creation story next, next time, but the fact that um, one that chapter two starts before the first story ends that drives me nuts. But. The fact that we're talking, uh, PM mentioned that God left the most complicated thing for last, you know, cooperate together. But also after that, and I think it's it's complicated and hard um, and hard for us to take seriously is the rest. The rest, especially in, in um, caring professions as we are in, as uh, frontline workers, it, it's, um, and not just us, I'm talking about doctors and nurses and, and um, uh, medical professionals, teachers, it's hard for us to stop. Yeah. Um, and, how, and how hard it can be for us um, to, to, to do as God does um, and to look at the work that we've done and completed um, and call it good and call it holy and um to call ourselves to remind ourselves that god also calls us good and holy and is calling us to this time of rest because not only do we deserve it but we need it we need it right
1: on well and i, I think it's it's really radically countercultural because our culture says that our worth is attached to what we produce so you know we've got the hustle we've got um you know get out there and do things, don't be lazy, Um, that, that work ethic that has been built into our Western understanding of our worth. And to say, no, rest is just as important, not so that you can go and create more, but just in and of itself, in and of itself, completely independently of what you're able to produce. Rest is divine and holy and sacred.
2: Hmm.
3: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with y'all. I mean, for me, rest is an acknowledgement that I am not the center of the universe and things will not fall apart if I decide to take a nap. And that is both fr- that is freeing to say the least.
2: And that's, I have no problem. I know things aren't gonna fall apart without me doing them. Um, I just have, especially with my history of, of trauma, I have a uh, difficulty acknowledging that I'm deserving of rest. Mm-hmm. Um, Same. and that might be, that might be true for other trauma survivors or just, um, because of how ingrained it, uh, it is into us of our, um, uh, what we can produce being our value. If we don't feel like we've produced enough, even if it's was, um, for me, a lot, a lot of pieces of, and probably for you guys too, a lot of pieces of our job are more mentally taxing than physically. Um, and and if there's any psychosomatics going on, you could also say that those physical things start to, or those mental things start to tax our bodies physically. Point being, um, I don't, I go home after days that are really mentally taxing, confused as to why I'm exhausted. Yeah. Um, and I actually had an instance last week where I was talking to a trauma survivor and, um, the next morning I was, I didn't want to get out of bed. I was exhausted. I was having so much trouble focusing. And then I didn't realize why until I talked to my therapist and I was telling her about the experience. And she was like, yeah, you used all your spoons yesterday. You Mm -hmm. used today's spoons yesterday. That's why you're so tired. And I was like, oh my gosh. Cause I got out of bed, got my kid ready for school, took her to school and then I went home and took a nap.
3: Yeah.
2: Like I didn't, I didn't get it. So the fact that um, reminding ourselves that we're deserving of rest as well.
3: No, you're absolutely right, Kelsey. Um, jobs where we are in full contact with the herd of the world, um, are every bit as taxing and stressful as someone who works 100% with their muscles. I mean, it it is. And I will go home at the end of the day after having met with a person who has been horribly traumatized, and I will feel similarly traumatized because we we cannot help but through the gift of compassion take on some of their pain. Mm
0: -hmm. And
3: what an incredible privilege that is to be called to that place but it's especially difficult because a lot of the world around us doesn't understand that that too is work and that yes. we deserve just like they do a time to recuperate.
2: A time, not just a time to recuperate, but also a time to process. Absolutely. And like that process can be processing can also be very taxing. True. Um, and then recuperation after yeah. that.
3: <laughs> yeah. Healing. Especially yeah.
2: as the, as the, experiences we encounter become more um entangled and, and traumatic with our communities, especially around this pandemic. Like it takes um it it takes time for us to process and then we have to recoup. Absolutely. Um, being respectful of, of that time as well. Absolutely. And thanks be to God that we have a God that did it God'self and encourages us um and encourages us by example, but also encourages us by command to do that, mm. to take that rest and to recognize not only ourselves, but also that time is holy.
3: Absolutely.
2: All right, siblings, we are at our time. I hope that you have enjoyed our final reflection on creation story number one. Um, and we will jump into creation story number two in Genesis two on our next recording. I, I hope that you've enjoyed it. I know I have, and we will see y'all next time.